Pirate Equity, People's Private Equity, Race Kershi, Framaginis, and Joe, the tax lawyer here for you. Cheese! Yo, People's Private Equity. Welcome to 2019, first episode. Hello, hello! Welcome, everybody, the first episode of the year for Pirate Equity. Uh, Finally, we have a guest. Joe, <laughs> we did it. We did it. Uh, hey guys. friend of mine and Frank. We finally persuaded people to come onto our show. <laughs> we had to. I think this was over some New Year's negotiations at, on the New Year's Eve. These negotiations were made for the next few guests that we've got. So good stuff. Uh, so, negotiations with other guests. Or, or... Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard stuff. It's, know, an gotta... un, it's an ongoing process. We sort of have to cajole to some carrots. And cajole. Sticks. There was some cajoling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was successfully cajoled onto the show. Well, we're very very glad that you're here. Um, what the hell is pirate equity, race? Oh yes. Well, we should probably mention once again, pirate equity <laughs> is obviously the podcast from People's Private Equity, which is the organisation that is looking to buy up companies and transform into them into workers' cooperatives. Uh, so basically, democratising finance and workplaces. And this podcast is basically uh, trying to bridge that gap between financial institutions and the normal people, and sort of enlightening you about all this uh, crazy finance stuff. So and today, we are going to be talking about one part that most people really don't know about until they start working, which is, of course, tax. Whoop, whoop, so we're here with Joe, who is a uh, tax lawyer, international, overseas, for families and companies. So uh, is, that, is that a fair synopsis, Joe, of what you yeah, do? Yeah, that just about sums it up, yeah. Okay. So um, we've worked out what the hell pirate equity is, and we've worked out who the hell Joe Brothers is. Now we need to uh, work out what the hell the structure of today is. So um, I think we should keep it nice and loose, to be honest, and just divide the... Uh, this episode into two parts. The first part we can discuss some kind of big broad issues affecting society at the moment um, and try to focus in on things that Joe's in a particularly good position to talk about. So maybe some stuff to do with tax and tax evasion and how that relates to private equity, stuff to do maybe with uh, financial engineering and uh, you know innovation and entrepreneurship, that kind of stuff. And then in the second half of the show we can talk about some of our specific plans at people's private equity, some of the institutions that we ourselves are, are, are trying to uh, create. But before we obviously dive into that nice uh, meaty discussion, uh, I should just mention that we've obviously got a conference coming up. It is well exciting. Lots of people have already confirmed that they're going to come and speak about some stuff to do with the old finance and, uh, and related phenomenon. So it's uh, at Greenwich University. It's on the 16th of February. It is going to be absolutely sick. I'm very, very excited about it. Um, you can find about all the details about that on our social media and stuff. Tickets ha- are selling like uh, uh, hotcakes or some other kind of relevant cliche. Uh, make sure you get them while they're hot, otherwise they will all be gone. Um, is there any other plugs that we need to do? We were going to do another episode. I think we were going to do another uh, uh, installment of the reading group, but we've not got round to that because we've been so busy with... Uh, Oh, we're doing a bloody conference, mate. Yeah, it takes like, it takes up a lot of time and resources. Uh, I don't know why we're Australian now, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, point is get involved with the uh, the conference. Do we have any um, speakers that we want to announce, or should we Does just leave, yeah, I mean, should we just leave people to look oh, up well, themselves? You know, there is one speaker who's announced. That is myself. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. What are you going to be talking about? Catch me. What are you going to be talking uh, about? Well, I think I'm going to be doing. Well, it was originally the talk that was going to be how to get a job in the city. But uh, George, what's his name? George Briley, who's one of the key comrades, or as I like to say, liberates in this uh, in this pirate organisation, who um, who said that who said to me basically over the Christmas holidays. I think this was a Christmas gift to me. He was like, "We're giving you full autonomy on your session, and uh, we we don't have anyone else for it." And I was like, "Okay, I'm just going to do investing 101. Nice. The original plan, original what we're going to do. I'm just going to do it." as a, a lecture but it's going to be super great okay that sounds good <laughs> I am I'm also supposed to be organising a panel but I have been um, preoccupied with other things and been a bit lazy recently but basically uh, I have some loose idea about how I'm going to try and structure the panel I'm organising which will be something to do with the legal sector and trying to look at struggles and exploitation within the legal sector there's a lot of people a lot of workers in that sector who are being really badly exploited and then a lot of 
you know, partners of law firms and so forth who are getting really, really rich out of it. Um, so the idea is to have some people come in, maybe some trade unionists or some people who are trying to explore alternative corporate structures within the legal sector specifically, and then get some people to discuss how we might create a private a private equity fund specifically for the legal sector to go in, buy up law firms, and start fucking shit up, yo. Pretty cool. So that's uh, that's what I've been working on. So should we sashay then seamlessly onto talking about why we're cheerful? That's Reasons your, that's your whole bit. Cheerful. Your boy Miliband. What a man. So, uh, yeah, well, I guess first, before we go to reasons to be cheerful, let's do reasons to be cheerful. So, uh, we, we spoke last episode, actually. It was only... Uh, we talked about index funds. And obviously, the, the inventor of the index fund, Mr. John Bogle, uh, unfortunately passed away on Wednesday, I believe. So, that's uh, a very sad thing to find out. So, mm. you know, obviously, jo- John Bogle, uh, most, most people, you know, the layman, as we say, doesn't, don't really know who he was. But he basically invented the index fund against all odds against the financial community because all the big banks did not didn't want like index funds to be around because obviously they can't make anywhere near as much money because people are buying it and holding it forever mm. and the fees are very low anyway. But John Bowles managed to get through that, created the index fund, which is the you know true accessible sort of way for the ordinary person to invest. And uh, I think it should be remembered that way. Definitely. I think we can... Van- Vanguard was his company, was it? Vanguard, that's it. I just it. love that's that it. because apparently... So I, I had read some articles after I saw that he died and I, I remember you mentioning him and he, he was mentioning a few of the uh, the more kind of liberal books that I'm reading at the moment about finance. And um, and I thought it was interesting because apparently he named it after this ship, right? It was some kind of important ship to do with whatever. But Vanguard, of course, is also like a term that has a lot of weight within the Marxist tradition. Lenin and Leninism is kind of um, uh, like uh, one, one of the key aspects of Leninism is the idea of having a Vanguard party. And whether you should or shouldn't have this communist Vanguard is mm. a, a big a, a big split within the radical left. Right. And so what is a Vanguard in the communist sense? So the Vanguard in the communist sense is a kind of Leninist style Bolshevik party that exists. It's, it's based on the theory that the, mar- uh, the, the working class has the... Um, the class interests and the and the power to transform society, but it doesn't have the sort of game plan basically. And what you need is a a, a party filled with seasoned cadres who've spent you know decades thinking about and theorizing how you affect social change. And then when a moment is ripe for um, sort of uh, economic and social revolution, the Vanguard Party kind of steps in as they did in in 1917 in Russia and transform society i'm not trying to hijack your your uh, eulogy i'm just saying it's an interesting uh it's, it's interesting that he was called vanguard investment this um, i would just because this whole podcast in a way is an attempt to bridge this unbridgeable mm. gap between your shitty liberal politics and my mm. ultimately correct communist politics um so vanguard can be the small consensus that we attempt to cons- expand on <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure how committed a fire a firebrand leninist this guy would have been i have my doubts as to whether he <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the, the, I'm subverting him from right. uh, from within uh, mere days after his. <laughs> I mean, I would just want to say well, one last thing on this. Uh, it, it, it's funny actually because when he originally like started, uh, came up with the idea of the index fund, and came it, I think it was to Morgan Stanley and like approached it to them. They actually accused him of being a communist. Nice. Said this like you know, we, obviously we, there was we talked about that article, which yeah. sort of posed the question: Is our index funds Marxist? And that was actually the first thing that came up. Yeah. Like they, they accused it of being a communist thing. Oh, everyone's going to own all the companies. It's so interesting. So anyway, I so wonder if he maybe did name it that for as a little wink and a nudge to, mm. to you comrades. By the way, just to be clear, uh, and I think he's probably with me, the, the communist uh, policy of life is not the correct way. We must strive to be liberal. Liberal values <laughs> is what we'll be preaching on this podcast. Well, this I is don't... the Lib Pod. <laughs> And uh, liberal values. Yeah, we, we can we can we can espouse those liberal values until we have a revolution in which the communist values will sort of seize the means of production or the the means of podcast or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's your reason. To, that's your reason to be cheerful. But do you have a reason to be cheerful, or is that kind of, or or are we sort of celebrating his life? And that's your. I think uh, yeah. I mean you know it's uh, it is a celebration. I think we we can be cheerful and uh, because uh, we we can we can now look on the oncoming downturn recession baby bear market okay nice death of the markets man a reason i'm super cheerful is because uh, and i think it's very it's very apt because it's going to be soon time for you for people 
the ordinary people who are now listening to this podcast, getting excited about finance, to start buying their index funds. You're going to buy an index fund soon. You're going to buy an index fund soon because uh, the markets are now in a bear market. So if you don't know what a bear market is, that is basically when uh, they've come 20% off their highs and it's generally what precedes a recession. So uh, obviously most people see this as a bad thing. You guys are probably like, whoa, this is going to be really bad. <laughs> Everything's screwed. But, and this was, uh, I believe this is something that Mr. John Bogle said, is that you should always try to take advantage of these downturns because that's where you can, uh, you can actually create the most growth. <laughs> Spoken like Lenin himself. Yeah. <laughs> take advantage of these downturns. Um, that's wonderful. Okay, so you're, you're cheerful because there's a bear market and you think that that's uh, an opportunity. Uh, my reasons for being cheerful are slightly more personal. Um, I have chosen as my chief reason um, the fact that I've just come back from two and a half weeks in the uh, occupied Palestinian territories. I went on a sort of prolonged holiday there, met lots of interesting people, uh, had lots of very interesting conversations with people. Um, I think on some of the previous episodes I've talked about how I'd really like to um, co-author an article about the way in which the uh, Israeli state is segregating the economy and um, and comparing um, comparing segregation in uh, the south the southern states of America under Jim Crow with the kind of segregation that's happening in Israel Palestine today uh, and so going there really helped me to put flesh on the bones of that you get a lot of uh, an intuitive grasp of what's happening on the ground there uh, so one of the I, I went around all the major kind of uh, towns in the West Bank and um, one of the things I did when I was knocking about was to tr was to take photographs of all of the financial institutions that I noticed. So looking at the different banks that are operating there, the different insurance companies, that kind of thing. So I've got lots of really fun, exciting ideas that I'm going to try and explore. And, and um, I'm in touch with a few, like I said, some, some Palestinian economists that I've been put in touch with. So the hope is that one of them will be crazy enough to uh, co-author a paper with me about that. But yeah, um, recommend going to visit the, the West Bank to, to anyone really, really... Uh, warm and um place full of uh sort of very in many ways very cheerful people but obviously there's a lot of uh, oppression and uh, apartheid going on there um and i saw a lot of stuff that's also very uh very worrying but basically my main reason for being cheerful is that i got to um finally go to palestine after years of talking about doing so so um that's my reason has that been like a lifelong sort of ambition? I've well? been I've been sort of involved with pro-Palestine activism for about 10 years now and I've been talking about going there for ages but I never really got around to it because I, I sort of felt a bit conflicted about the idea of going on holiday to the to the West Bank. And there are some people I've spoken to, like good um, lefty comrades who've, who've questioned the idea that you can really go on a holiday to uh, the West Bank, you know, that you should really be doing some kind of work when you're out there. Um, but I mean, I'd just say that it's quite clear that the Palestinian economy is... Um, is is quite reliant on tourism it's a really important part of palestine's uh economy uh so i mean i haven't i haven't really arrived at a stable view i definitely did some work when i was out there but it was it was pretty much a holiday but it's definitely left me feeling a lot quite rested i got enough sleep for once and yeah it was good did you uh did you visit any companies i know you obviously talk a lot about buying up companies in the in the west bank and such so did yeah. you visit any potential companies well, to I, buy? Didn't, I didn't actually think about it in those terms but um but now you mentioned it, i did visit a lot of companies i mean because you just do don't you you go and you eat food and you stay in you stay in hostels and rest and hotels um there is a so i'm for viewers who can't see my current outfit i'm wearing my customary yellow trousers and matching pikachu t-shirt um and i'm also wearing uh Make America Great Again hat that Race kindly gave to me um, at the same time as sporting my uh, authentic um, uh, kefir from the last remaining kefir factory in Hebron. So one of the really interesting things when you're out there is anytime you walk around wearing a kefir, um, guys will try and sell you a kefir and they'll say, oh, the one you're wearing is a knockoff Chinese kefir. So there seems to be this um, this Chinese market for cheap knockoff kefirs and then there's the one true Hebron kefir factory <laughs> and then there's also um, there's also kefirs made in Jordan so there's this whole and then and, then, and there's also like um, there's the cheaper kefir which I'm wearing and then there's the more expensive one with a, a swankier lining so there's this whole market for this authentic piece of Palestinian culture and you're wearing the cheaper yet still authentic kefir yeah, not so the cheaper I, Chinese knockoff kefir no, th so this is apparently not a Chinese knockoff because I went mm. to the actual factory in Hebron or um, Al Khalil as the uh, as the Arabs call it and um, 
so I sort of saw them make it so unless they've got a really cynical game <laughs> where they're importing Chinese kefirs and then pretending to produce them in the factory I'm pretty sure that this is a which, which is a kefir. distinct possibility let's be honest yeah, yeah totally I mean like who knows respect the hustle you know who knows but I mean like I saw I saw the actual factory and I saw them being made so so if the, if it is a hustle it's a very good one it's, they've, they've got it down to a T a fire festival uh, level uh, scam yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean I don't have any particular reason to believe that that's what's happening and in any event I, I imagine trying to import large numbers of Palestinian, uh, oh sorry, of Chinese kafirs would um, encounter trouble. I mean, I know that one of the big things that you, a lot of people told you was that there's there's a lot of cars in Palestine, but they're all really expensive because they pay tax twice because you have to import them into Israel. And then there's an additional tax when they come into uh, Palestine and the number plates are different. So Israeli cars have yellow number plates and Palestinian cars have white number plates. So you can tell if a car is registered mm. in Israel by the color of the number plate. And then obviously you have all of these uh, Jewish only roads and stuff. And you go to a place like Hebron, where the kefir factory is and the city's just basically been cut in half and apparently there's a ratio of four IDF soldiers to every one uh, Jewish settler in, in Hebron so there are some places where uh, you can really see the segregation is very very stark but um, but all of that like horrible realities of occupation notwithstanding I'm still citing that as my reason to be cheerful because it was a, it was a, a really good experience I really um, enjoyed it I went with a really good friend of mine uh, we spent two and a half weeks together knocking about the place and uh, yeah it was excellent and I'm feeling quite cheerful lovely stuff and uh, Joe, what is your reasons to be cheerful? My uh, reason to be cheerful is a bit more glib than than your guys' reasons to be <laughs> cheerful. I uh, raced just maybe an excellent cup of espresso, and it was full of caffeine, and I'm flying, and so I'm feeling pretty cheerful right now. Nice, yeah. nice. And that's, uh, that's it. There was an espresso-related accident before you came, whenever uh -huh. um, Race and I were plotting about how to um, ensnare you in our wonderful rhetorical um, web of uh, communist liberal <laughs> um, confusion skullduggery yeah um, and uh, race being as he is a klutz knocked over uh, his espresso that's unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> it is it is um, sorry so for your loss <laughs> so, um, so there we are we're all cheerful for our own reasons uh, let's move on to talking about some of the big issues right what should we what should we tackle first so, let's talk about tax man I reckon tax is the one to wade in on well this is I think this should be the flesh of this should all be some tax this should, the blood and the flesh should all be tax <laughs> the bones and, flesh, uh, the flesh you know yeah. if we go into some other topics that's fine but let's let's go into the big issue I mean I know Frank wants to talk to it as a radical leftist <laughs> uh, the big one tax evasion <laughs> so obviously Mr. Joe uh, I believe you help. You actually help people evade tax. Is that is that right? No, I, I go to jail if I well if if, if I Sorry. admitted that on air, I would go to jail. What I Which do is help people avoid tax. I help people legally minimize their tax bill, and okay. uh, you know I think there's an important distinction to be made there. Right? Yeah, of so, course there is, right? So, but, but isn't there? So isn't the received wisdom these days? I think the more this issue has come under scrutiny, isn't the idea that there's a there's a growing sort of grey area where it's actually quite difficult to know yeah. if it's evasion or or avoidance? And and I, the grey area arises when you have tax laws that are vague or ambiguous, so they can be interpreted in an aggressive manner. Um, and it's usually sort of words or phrases or concepts that the legislators, le legislators enacting the laws wouldn't necessarily have uh, been thinking about defining with any degree of precision. Hmm. And so uh, there is there is a way to take the position that you are you know, fully complying with your professional responsibilities and legally sort of aggressively dive headfirst into those zones of ambiguity like any lawyer does. Mm -hmm. But um, in, in tax, you can get some especially stark consequences from doing that. So the idea um, is that people come to you and you're, you're employed by a firm, is that right? Yeah. So people come to your firm on the basis that you have very specific granular knowledge of the way that different national tax regimes interoperate. Yeah. So that you could essentially help people to design a uh, an approach to a tax that allows them to minimize their liability. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I'll give you a concrete example. Um, so uh, there, there, there is, as, as you probably know, no overarching international tax system. There is only domestic tax systems that coexist harmoniously or not harmoniously, as the case may be. Mm. And so uh, a good example of that kind of tax arbitrage that my firm specializes in is financial instruments have no consistent characterization across tax systems. And so one neat game to play is if you want to uh, issue an intercorporate financial instrument, you do it in a way that it's characterized as a debt instrument on the issuer side and a 
uh, intercorporate dividend on the holder side. So what you end up with is a deductible interest payment in one jurisdiction with a tax-free inclusion on the other side, which is just not supposed to happen. It mm-hmm. would never happen in any rational domestic tax system. But at the end of the day, you, you, you find the arbitrage opportunities, you sort of you know, head right through them, and ultimately, you know, which jurisdiction is losing revenue? Whose laws have you contravened in that situation? Mm-hmm. Nobody's, sure. right? Because there is no coordination. So There's- let's so let's unpack that a bit. For um, so, uh, uh, so I, I certainly um, would benefit from some explanation of some of the terms you've used. Specifically, I have an idea of what arbitrage means, right? And my understanding of it is that it operates in the context of a market, right? So mm-hmm. it's like an example of arbitrage is when you know that someone is selling a good at a certain price and another person is buying it at a higher price. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can um, sorry, other way around, right? So you can buy the good at a lower price and sell it at a higher price. Right, so risk, and you're, a risk-free. Risk free, right. So it's, so it's risk-free in the context of a market. Yeah. So can you, can you explain what arbitrage, if, that's a, 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 if my understanding of arbitrage is correct, and then sort of apply it in the context of tax? Like, yeah. wh- why do you say that's arbitrage? I'm not sure if the two, uh, the two definitions of arbitrage have any logical connection with one another, um, but you're right, I should have explained it. In the tax, in the tax world, arbitrage means taking advantage of inconsistent characterizations across jurisdictions. And the three biggest categories are, uh, one, financial instruments, so equity versus debt versus something else. Um, uh, Number two would be uh, uh, entities. So in some jurisdictions, um, LLCs or limited liability partnerships are tax-free flow-through entities, so they're considered to be basically tax nothings. And in other jurisdictions, they're considered to be opaque corporations, and so it stops the flow of income in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands or whatever, and that jurisdiction never sees the inflow of income, and so there's no tax. Mm. Uh, and those, those, are the two, uh, those are the two big categories, but it, it basically means to, to take advantage of the fact that there is no, uh, co- there is no international coordination of domestic tax systems. Mm. There will inevitably be uh, 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 inconsistent characterizations of tax concepts and entities across jurisdictions. Sure. And if you can find those opportunities and exploit them, then you can, you know, help your clients minimize their tax bill, and you can sleep at night because you can say that you fully complied with the laws of all the relevant jurisdictions. And there's no, there's no concealment. There's no evasion. This isn't, you know, Panama Papers stuff. So. The way I would, you know, I, I can sort of sense this question coming up is how is this different than the Panama Papers? And the the, the big difference is, in the pa- the Panama Papers involved concealment. So the, the Panama Papers involved uh, non-disclosure to tax authorities, sort of trying to, to conceal your activities or conceal uh, your ideas. Uh, whereas what we do is, is, you know, there's full disclosure. Sure. There's no there's no pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. So, but, so broadly, one of the, th- the interesting things that I think you've brought up, though, is that you've said that no rational system would allow for these inefficiencies. Right. And they really result from, they're a function of the fact that you have a system of atomized or separated nation states, and there's no overarching tax uh, um, uh Set of rules. There's no harmonization of the tax rules internationally. Yet. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so um, I've been reading around this subject quite a lot, and there's some really good thinkers and um, and people uh, advising the Labour Party on this stuff. So you've got Prem Sicker, and you've got Richard Murphy, and you've got Nicholas Shackson are three of the people I've been looking at. And I've also been talking to a lot of lawyers, and there are some very interesting conversations. Um, some some lawyers with more radical politics like mine. Um, some lawyers with uh, tedious centrist politics who are trying to fight a rearguard action because they see that this is quite an explosive issue. But one of the big, one of the big, really intuitive ideas I've come across that Richard Murphy talks about in his book Dirty Secrets is this idea of country by country reporting, right? Right. So that's the, that's an attempt to create an international tax code. And from from reading his very lucid explanation of it, it essentially would require. Um, all corporate entities and all companies to have a certain set of, I think it's only 12 criteria, 12 criteria that they have to report. Yeah. And by doing that, it allows you to much more easily navigate these big multinational corporate groups, right? Groups of corporations incorporated in different companies. And by applying, he shows how by applying very simple ratios, you can very quickly see where the tax havens are, right? It's yeah. like and, and pro- in fact, prof- yeah. profit per employee, this kind of stuff, right? And then you go to a tax haven and the profit per employee is in, in the millions, right? Right. And in fact, CBC reporting has been enacted in most Western countries over the last year or two. And that goes some way towards solving the problem. But, but ultimately, it doesn't get you to a complete solution to the arbitrage problem because all it, all it gives you is information, mm. right? All, all it says is, you know, the, the, this subsidiary is being loaded up with intercorporate debt. Somebody's, somebody's identified a debt equity arbitrage opportunity. What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, each nation state is still sort of reluctant to pool its own sovereignty in a way that would fully solve this problem. So okay. 
it inundates them with information, and then ult ultimately what, what we've seen is they don't do very much about it because mm -hmm. they want to retain full control of their own domestic tax systems. So obviously you do a lot of interdimensional Oh, not interdimensional. <laughs> interdimensional. Uh, inter <laughs> international. That's a, that's a growth opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, obviously, a lot of international uh, sort of tax doings. Uh, and obviously, a big one of that, I'm assuming, would be investment funds. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, at my previous firm, that, that was basically all I did. Less, less, uh, less so at, at this firm. But yeah, okay, the, I get the occasional S, uh, investment fund diligence uh, project. So right. yeah, I'm, I'm more or less familiar with... with uh, private equity hedge fund taxation. And what are the main sort of differences between taxation? Because obviously you read a lot about uh, financial institutions like hedge funds, for example, uh, I think in America especially paying a lot less tax than normal uh, corporations. So is there, has, has there been a difference in your experience between working with normal corporations and working with investment funds. Yeah, well, I think the big, the big sort of uh, loophole in private equity taxation that people talk a lot about, and I think it would be a good jumping-off point for a discussion on this podcast, is the uh, the carried interest treatment of uh, uh, private equity fund managers in the U.S. Uh, and so you you guys may have already talked about it before, but the basic idea is uh, to sort of disguise what is in effect compensation from labor for sort of picking and choosing these various uh, portfolio companies and selling them structuring it as a as a share of capital gain when the fund sells a portfolio company and being taxed uh, at 20% instead of 37%. And a lot of people say, well this is, you know, this is this is not this is not economically rational treatment because uh, these guys don't put in, put in any of their own capital, right? All they have is a 20% profits interest if the fund makes money. If it does, they get taxed as if they had put in capital and gotten a gain on it. Uh, but what they're really getting is is no different than wage income, no different than you know executive comp, all of which are taxed at a much higher rate. Um, but you know it's it's a it's a very fine line between a return from capital and a, re and a return from labor, which is sort mm -hmm. of you know one of the sort of foundational discussion points of this uh, podcast. Totally, on my understanding. Right? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I'm, an another thing I'd be interested to get your view on. Then I've I've been reading this uh, very interesting tome called uh, Economics for the Many, right? So that was edited by John McDonnell MP, who's obviously the shadow. Chancellor of the Exchequer and it is a collection of essays by very interesting thinkers who look at different aspects of what uh, Labour government's economic policy might be in lots of different areas. Uh, so Prem Sikha does have an essay in that about tax, that's his whole um, bit, is how do you close these tax loopholes, how do you create a more just international tax system. One of the things he picks up on is tax relief on debt repayments. And it seems from talking to some people um, that I've spoken to who work in finance and who work or have experience of private equity, that one of the major things that people are doing when they go into a company has very little to, to do with actually making operational changes. It's not about going onto the shop floor and changing, um, you know, increasing worker productivity or anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. And a lot more of it has to do with financial engineering, right? Going in and loading a company up with lots of debt. Yeah. The, the interest payments on which are tax-free at the same time as trying to, as, as you've explained it, sort of um, engineer your finances so that profits are being accrued in jurisdictions where they're not taxed. Yeah, and I and I think that was uh, you know it's it's sort of there's a consensus now that one of the causes of the 2008 financial crisis was this completely irrational preference in the U.S. tax system for debt as a as a as a financing method over equity, and so you had all these uh, companies that were over leveraged only because you can deduct your interest payments for tax purposes, but you can't deduct. There's no there's no way to get tax relief on the issuance of more equity. And so, you know, obviously there's a huge uh, incentive there to, to choose debt over equity as a method of financing, and you ended up with uh, companies that were too too leveraged uh, and couldn't handle the uh, the downturn, and so it made it much worse than it needed to be. But, um, so what might be the consequences then if uh, Prem Sikha's proposal is adopted by a, a, a Labour government in the UK, and they do get rid of that tax relief? Uh, what would be you, sorry, what, what, what might be the context? What, 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 can I can I just ask what what is the nature of the relief? Is it the, the the proposal is to eliminate the deductibility of interest or to to eliminate taxation on on a write off of debt or what is the what is the precise nature of this proposal? Is this is this about writing off existing debt or is this about not allowing companies to deduct interest payments? Not allowing the latter. I think I think okay. it's the latter. Yeah. 
Um, so I think the the consequence of that would be it, it, it will be harder for companies to grow quickly because uh, debt will become more expensive because it's not uh, deductible. Um, and that might be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you feel about that, that sort of thing. But, you know, the deductibility of debt sort of supercharges the ability of companies to expand quickly. Mm. It makes, uh, it makes uh, economic upturns uh, more uh, sort of aggressive and uh, makes downturns worse and sort of, sort of supercharges it in both directions. Right. Um, so one, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about then was, um, was innovation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, innovation is obviously... Um, so I mean, it's it's fair to characterize your politics as kind of liberal conservative. Is that right? Or how how would you describe your how would you characterize your politics? Perhaps it's better for you to just to just say. Uh, I would characterize my own politics as uh, uh, aggressively pragmatic, mm. uh, anti ideological. Okay. Uh, so who would you vote for in the next general election, for example? I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to put you on the spot, or yeah. like, but like in terms of or or, or just assess like yeah. where where do you see yourself fitting within the current yeah. spectrum of British politics? It, it's 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 difficult for probably obvious reasons. I think if David Cameron were still the leader of the Conservative Party, I have no qualms about voting Tory. Sure, but uh, I think I may vote Lib Dem in the next election. Okay, and yeah. so and maybe it's helpful then just to get a bit of a spectrum. Where are you at race at the minute? What's like obviously you're a fan, you're a fanboy for. Uh, Ed Miliband. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> you have been you have been known. Is that is that ironic or sincere? I can't really figure it out. It's 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 sincerely sincere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I have, I am a big fanboy of uh, Ed Miliband. I think the reason why we're doing this podcast is because of Ed Miliband's podcast. You know, mm. one whole segment what, is the name of his podcast, dude. One way of the first segment is called "Reasons to Be Cheerful." That's true. Um, but before we go into my politics, I just think. Uh, to uh, well, we haven't got to mine yet. So yeah, everyone you knows you're a communist, blah, blah, blah. No one cares, Frank. <laughs> okay, okay, you're fine. a communist. We get it. <laughs> fine. Um, the liberals but, are taking over. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think, I mean, when, when I've, well, I was discussing with you guys before about what uh, Joe, or Joe was discussing what, what sort of he is politics. I think maybe it would be to get a good idea, because obviously you're from Canada, right? Right. So maybe explain, and you've lived in America, so maybe explain or, like where you would vote in these different countries. I think that would give people a more broader. Okay, yeah. I, I, I suppose I don't want to get too bogged down in. in <laughs> no, because uh, it's very interesting, Frank. It would only take two. It would take one minute if you do thirty seconds on each. Okay, sure. Let's, so okay, so let's fire ahead, Joe. Well, I think I think the basic I think the basic point is that the center is much farther left here than it is in either of the other two countries I've lived in. So, in in the U.S., unless you're a complete reactionary Cro-Magnon crank, you would vote Democratic, right? Whereas here, I think there's a much there's a much more reasonable spectrum of choice, at least for people like me. So. Mm. That's interesting. And what yeah. about Canada? Uh, it's probably somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Interesting. Are yeah. you a Trudeau man? Uh, I don't know, actually. I, 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 I haven't lived, sorry. I haven't lived in Canada since uh, Trudeau was elected, okay. and I don't know that much about him. So, you know, uh, he seems all right. I mean, he seems I like a perfectly really cool. pleasant, pleasant young man, you know? Okay. Well, are you a Trudeau man? No, Frank? come on, he's a dickhead. What's 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 the problem with Trudeau? He's he's cool. He's a, um, so he's the kind of smiling face of like um, radical centrist reaction, right? Like his job is to come in and fight a rearguard action to to try and stave off the crisis of uh, of neoliberal capitalism, right? He's kind of like a, a knockoff version, not a knockoff. He's he's like a good. Uh, he's actually a very good version of Macron, right? He's sort of succeeding <laughs> where Macron's failing. So Tony Blair, Trudeau, and Macron are kind of all in the same little box in my head as like really shiny sociopathic centrists. And you know, it's 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 and, and Hillary Clinton as well, right? And it's good to see that whenever those um, those uh, those ideas get an electoral airing, they tend to get the shit kicked out of them by the electorate. Um, so Tony Blair can't say anything in public without just bringing toxic um, toxicity to everything that he touches. Uh, Hillary Clinton obviously lost the election by uh, being uh, the the establishment candidate. And then Macron is this interesting, like last gasp, I think, of uh, of European centrism, and he's having the shit kicked out of him by a fucking left wing street movement in the, or you know, arguably left wing street movement in the form of the Gilets Jaunes, right, the Yellow Vest movement, who are already like pulling concessions out of him, like pulling teeth, right, like uh, raising the minimum wage. So I think uh, Trudeau is definitely in that um, is in that vein. He's not proposing anything different. He's trying to continue with business as usual by using using the politics of socially socially progressive issues like you know important issues to do with uh, gender and sexuality and, and race and stuff uh, i don't doubt that he's got superficially good politics on those points but he's also the big oil candidate he's there to preserve the interests of capital he is not in any way left wing and he like so why would i identify with him right he's the enemy he, like he's, he's the very sophisticated smiling face of the liberal center that i'm opposed to 
Well, okay. I mean, if you say so. I raised, um, I raised, I raised innovation, though, right? So let's let's briefly. Right, I was going to say innovation. Let's, let's briefly let's, bri- let's briefly talk about uh, about uh, innovation, and then perhaps we can talk on uh, we we can dive a bit more headlong into some of the stuff we're trying to do specifically to to, to perform our own kind of innovation. So maybe innovation could be the segue, right? So I suppose in my head, this conversation goes something like. Uh, you know, capitalism was for a time and for quite a long time, possibly 150, 200 years, very good at generating a certain kind of technological innovation. OK, like uh, things like the steam engine, railways, um, uh, you know, and, and then laterally things like the Internet and iPhones and Silicon Valley. That is the big defense. You know, these kind of Elon Musk, Bill Gates type characters who are said to be the kind of poster childs of innovative capitalism. So what's mm. interesting to me as a communist is the idea that um, is that capitalist modes of innovating are reaching the, the end of their life, and um, and they're beset they're beset by by two two crises really I would say possibly three crises. The first is environmental, right? So um, the innovation is coming at the expense of the of the planet, and it's a, 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 it's premised upon an obsession with with GDP growth, which is totally environmentally unsustainable. The second aspect of the crisis is that it's. Um, it's premised upon private ownership of the means of production, right? Which is obviously quite a loaded Marxist phrase, but really it's quite intuitive. It's like Zuckerberg owns Facebook, right? It's like he's created a company, uh, he incorporated it, lots of people worked for it, but he's the one left carrying the shares, really. Damn I, right. I, I understand that there was an IPO and everything, but the, but the point is before... There's a majority stake. Yeah, yeah before so the realisation event or whatever, he uh, he just has this, like, this nominal idea, this legal idea that he owns the company, then results in him becoming this billionaire. Uh, and I question whether that's, um, you know, that allocation of resources is actually efficient. Isn't it better to give a bunch of people a decent, steady existence in which they don't have to work shitty jobs they hate? And actually, that would increase innovation. And then I think the third thing, yeah, is to do with this idea that you've got Einstein's in a sweatshop in Bangladesh, right? Like that these people who could be bringing their creative energies to bear, but instead they're required to work sort of slavish jobs for not enough money to live because the steve jobs of this world you know like i'm mixing up my metaphor slightly not really like basically you can imagine chinese factory workers who are very clever but who don't get to in any way manifest the innovative potential of their way of seeing things because the innovation is 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 um there's a, a limited class of innovation that's allowed to take place in silicon valley at the expense of the workshop of the world that has to produce the ideas invented yes well, so, so so that's my kind of like broad brush leftist critique of capitalist innovation and why it may why we might need a different uh, way of doing things and right. i don't know if you disagree well i i don't i don't disagree that that any of those things are serious problems i think where maybe where i part ways with you is characterizing them as crises of capitalism as opposed to social problems to be solved with incremental pragmatic solutions mm. and i think that's you know again and again when we have these conversations we we actually rarely disagree on the problems mm. but we disagree quite fundamentally on the solutions mm. and uh you know whether whether ra- whether radical change is necessary or not so. so but what about the distribution point then why 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 is it possible for someone like zuckerberg to exist why should he have a bi- billions of dollars because why should it's, it's, silly, exactly. it's, a silly, well, exactly, yeah. it's a silly allocation of resources. But but because this is the this is the classic radical leftist critique is that uh, you know if if someone's got super rich they must have stolen it from this person. So if we're in this room. I'm a billionaire. You're just a millionaire, which you know you are just a millionaire. Uh, and you know you'd be like oh. And then Joe's just like a, 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 he's just got a pound. I'm not. Poor Joe's I'm just not, got a pound. I'm not a millionaire, for the record. <laughs> and uh, and, and, not you yet. Know, and Ben, the philosopher critiquer on the corner, the communist critiquer, is like, oh, he's got a million, he's got a billion, he's got a pound. Well, he must have stolen from him, and he must have stolen from him. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think Marxists wouldn't say stolen; they would just say exploited. And um, given a certain definition of exploitation, it's very difficult to see capitalist accumulation or, or capital accumulation as anything other than exploitative, right? So, um, exploited given it, a certain it, definition. Yeah. So, but so, so uh, given a Marxist definition, so exploitation has this normative, like moralistic tinge to it, like it's a bad thing to exploit people. But actually, in the Marxist sense, it's just exploiting in the descriptive sense, like how you exploit an asset. So like you talk about exploiting your potential you talk about exploiting um like a car that you have you exploit it to its full potential right by by using it in a way that's uh, productive and efficient and sensible is right? that what the marxists mean they can't the, mean the, that. The, 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 the marxists literally just mean that um that people are doing work that is valuable and 
all value comes from that labor and there's a certain amount of surplus value that's generated that capitalists claim to own okay so they're just exploiting this um, the the labor power of their workers in order to extract profit it is very difficult to argue against that conception of what's happening i just i look, I, look at I, any I, can, company, I can take a shot go on do it <laughs> So what you describe as surplus value, I would recharacterize as the value of the idea, the germ of the idea that Zuckerberg came up with in 2003 or whatever, that has brought you know millions of people around the world joy and happiness and and whatever else. That is that is the extra value. But the but, value. but but so 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 two things then. Number one, it must be possible for that idea to have been developed in very very similar ways to the way that it was, but in a corporate structure where it was simply impossible for one person to accumulate that much wealth. Right. So it could have been, for example, the case that you said, right, we are going to stick with a standard private limited company limited by shares but the rule is that anyone who is on the company's books as an employee gets an equal number of shares and as the value of the company increases our stake in it increases together and so we're all um, equally well remunerated for the, the increasing value of the company right that's, that's an example of how you could have done it differently you could have done it differently but that's how, not how it in fact panned out right mm -hmm. which which i think is, is is there's there's a profound point to be gleaned from that right? i I, th I i think you're right that there's a profound point which is that it's to do with uh, the current way that capitalism is constituted is such that it doesn't really have anything to say about grossly uh, unequal distributions of capital. But the second more interesting point, I think, um, in the case of Facebook specifically, which is a really useful thought experiment, I think, because so many people use it and it's quite intuitive, is that Zuckerberg isn't a genius. I'm sorry, he's not a genius. And it's- It's wrong, let, wrong. Let me finish my point. This is wrong. Let me finish my point, you can come back, okay. He's not a genius. His idea is derivative and unoriginal. He was a guy who was in the right place at the right time. He didn't invent the idea of an online social network. There were social networks online before he came along. He was in the right place at the right time. He came up with a good iteration of that idea. He uh, he um, he privatized that idea by incorporating a company that in some technical legal sense owns Facebook. And he came up with a good mechanism for growing the network. And then because of network effects, you effectively need to, there needs to be just like there's only one Google, there sort of needs to be only one Facebook, the place where everyone goes to do their social interacting. And he's now profiti uh, privately profiting from the existence of what is effectively a very important uh, public service, a utility, right? It's, it's no different really from a train network or a telephone network. And yet he privately owns that network. He's not a genius. He's someone who incorporated a private limited company at the right time and had a decent idea. And I, I, I don't doubt that he's quite clever and played his cards well. He's not a genius. He doesn't deserve to be a billionaire. It's absurd. Well, you know, all that critique just sort of proves that he is a, a genius, and that's why he's a billionaire, and that's why we should have genius billionaires. And to be honest, it was all proven because, you know, at the end of the day, the, um, we, we need to wrap this up, and I'm going to quickly wrap this up in a very succinct point, but the reason why the radical leftists are opposed to the, the, the billionaire class is because they know that they can never be the billionaire class, and they're jealous, and they're very sad. Uh, that they cannot be billionaires. I'll so take, they make uh, up these uh, uh, narratives to assume that every billionaire has stolen from every poor person to, to get where they are. I'll take No, no, let me just wrap this up because uh, we do need to. Now, the, the point is that both of you are right. And it comes down to the fundamental point that we all must learn is to just do both. We can have both, you know, Zuckerberg uh, private companies uh, that where it's the one person starts it and then shares are distributed but he retains the most shares I think that's really cool because other people get to profit from it and he gets to profit the most because he is the one who invented it he is a genius he is a genius and then we can also have things like what we're going to be creating in cooperatives where as you talk about everyone owns it and you know they're, you, they're, they're sort of all growing their shares as the company grows along okay. I think we should aim that's what this company needs to be aiming to do not some crazy stuff not some crazy communist wacko quack quack just basically exactly that is okay. in, like, coming I, I, into this I'll, environment I'll, 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 with, I'll, but with by utilizing both i but, hear your critique and i hear you we can do but we can do both but the, the problem of course is that there's the basic fundamental economic concept of opportunity cost which is premised on the idea that you cannot do both you can only spend time once you can only spend money once you can only spend resources once and that is the whole problem at the heart of capitalism is that it wants to ignore those distributional questions and wants to imagine in a completely idealistic universe right that has no bearing on material reality that you can somehow how do both you can have your cake and eat it you can spend your pound twice the point is that you can't you have to decide where to distribute those things and for as long as we continue to distribute them in such a way that one man called mark zuckerberg has billions of dollars and vast swathes of humanity can't afford to fucking eat 
that will continue to be an indictment of that system. And I will continue to suggest that actually we can do something that is far less exploitative and far less willing to countenance such grotesque inequality that, that, uh, that kids die for want of basic medication, that, um, that, that people uh, go without houses in one of the most developed countries in the world. It's a silly way of allocating resources and it needs to come to an end and it will come to an end. The only question is how and when. Not, not to narcissistically bring this back to taxation, but couldn't, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't we solve this problem in a more pragmatic way by simply increasing the uh, rate of inheritance or estate taxes? I agree let's with say, that. That's let's, very say, good let's, policy. let's have a 95% uh, inheritance tax. I, well, I can definitely agree with that. I agree with that, but, yeah. but I challenge you that's, to find... That's still capitalist. I capitalism with a high estate tax rate. I challenge you to find a parliamentary system that's capable of affecting that kind of a reform. But it's an interesting point of consensus. We agree yeah. that, that that is essentially the, the, the correct way of seeing things is that we do need to find a way of preventing um, too much distortion when it comes to yeah. the distribution. But I think where you and I disagree is, is the extent to which right. we need to do that. But I'd like to unpack that idea as well. So you say there's no no parliament in the world that would be capable of uh, enacting that kind of reform. Yeah. Why, so do, you, why do you think that is? Allende's Chile is the, is the key example, right? right. So it's like a, a, a peripheral colonial country, 1970, gets elected in the height of the Cold War. Its uh, economy is based on essentially exporting copper. And within three years, the CIA fund a counter-revolutionary coup in which Allende is killed and, and a Pinochet a right. totalitarian dictator is, is brought into power and it's not a coincidence that he's the one who pioneers uh, neoliberal capitalism yeah. but I, I mean but why, why can't that happen today I, I'm conscious I mean I think I, we, we could get into the weeds on this but I think <laughs> that like we're, we're unlikely to agree on this point suffice it to say my understanding of history is that uh, like a parliamentary reformist road to trying to achieve seismic political change reaches up, uh, reaches a certain barrier beyond which you need a revolution um, because uh, because of reasons that are too complex to to distill uh, here. Um, and I'm just I'm just conscious that we did say we'd we transition into talking about the specific discrete funds we're trying to set up. Sure. So much as I, I do really want to talk about imperialism, which is it's my whole no drum. No more like, empire. It's my whole drum that I like to beat. But let's 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 discuss the um. Let's talk about the fund. Let's talk about the funds we're trying to set up. So um, uh, uh, one point of clarification, and then I think we can kick it over to Joe to just to, to just give us some critical insight, right? Um, you mentioned cooperatives race. Um, I'm quite wary of defining people's private equity in terms of. Um, funds that exist to turn workplace into cooperatives. I think the correct way of conceiving of it is a fund which exists to try to affect greater worker ownership of the means of production and cooperatives is only one way of conceiving of that and there's uh, the more I've been reading about this the more I've encountered quite robust Marxist criticism of the cooperative movement which in many ways is very lacking in ambition and is not radical okay so i'm not saying i'm not i'm not expressing a final view on cooperatives i'm just saying i don't think it's true to say that people's private equity is about creating cooperatives it's about creating funds that increase worker power and increase worker ownership of the means of production but i think the best way to proceed uh, to affect this transition then perhaps is uh, you know joe you're a very good friend of mine and um i've sort of uh, approached you quite early on in in the gestation of this idea, right? I sent you uh, a memo with my thinking on it, and we've talked about it a lot over the over the. It, it must be years now, really. Almost two years, so yeah. a year and a half. Yeah. So, um, so perhaps a good way to to start is for you to explain your understanding of what people's private equity is, and then we can have a bit of a back and forth, and maybe Race can jump in with with, with his understanding as well. Okay. Uh, well. My my understanding is that uh, this this fund is is being established. Uh, as a means of, of taking over uh, in some form, presumably paying fair market value for shares of existing companies that do not allow workers a, a sufficient say in how the companies run, uh, take over the companies, uh, uh, allow workers to have that control that's lacking, uh, whether through putting them, putting them on the board, uh, giving them executive positions, just generally allowing them to make uh, to make decisions, uh, corporate level decisions. Uh, how the the money, how, where where the money comes from to buy out the existing shareholders, I've never been entirely clear on, and and I and I think we, you know we, you've gone back and forth on that a number of times. I'm also not clear on the exit strategy. So so uh, this this is this is nominally called a private equity fund, and normally a private equity fund would buy shares, wait five to eight years and then sell the shares to somebody else. And I'm not sure whether the purchaser would themselves pay fair market value for the shares. I'm not sure whether the value of the shares would have increased from the time of the initial purchase, or indeed whether that, that would even be an objective to increase the value of the shares. Um, and so I think that's I think that's the those are the major points. Yeah, right? I definitely think you I think you've put it in a nutshell. What do you reckon, Ray? Do you think I, that's a, a, an accurate description of what we're trying to do? I think pretty much. I mean I, I personally believe that 
it should be a objective. But I think the key is changing it from the objective. Because that's pretty much... You're talking what, about worker, worker control? Uh, no, no, talking about... Oh, increasing value. Increasing the value. Uh, making profit. Of, in five to ten years or so. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously that is the, the standard private equity model, mm-hmm. is to increase... That's the, that's, well, that's the only... That's the only purpose of standard private equity it is, is yeah. to buy a company and increase its value and then sell it off for a, for a bigger profit. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would probably, it would be a value, but it wouldn't be the value. We, we, obviously, the first like values are to democratize the workplaces as such. Right. So, so a few points of clarification then. Like, I think your, your summary is really uh, accurate and you've clearly um, uh, grasped the idea. Uh, I mean, it's not particularly complex idea right but you have identified usefully some some problems one thing i would say is you said the fund um the more i think about people's private equity the more i think of it in sort of um as having two essential manifestations so one of those manifestations is you know this podcast is part of it it's a public facing discussion that we're trying to have about building alternative financial institutions so you're right that it doesn't even necessarily need to be private equity you could you could conceive of i mean brett scott who's uh, one of the speakers who's going to be at our conference talks in his book uh, the, the heretics guide to global finance about you know a, a hedge fund like a kind of marxist hedge fund um there are lots of there are lots of um, alternative financial vehicles that we can explore and so people's private equity in its public manifestation is about an attempt to have these discussions and to contribute to this this broader discussion about a, a counter hegemonic left wing narrative to reimagine what finance could be and how it could operate and then the second private aspect is not not capitalizing a fund per se but we're actually looking at several different options for different types of funds right so i mentioned a legal sector fund that would exist to buy up law firms and that's um, that's intuitive to me because I work in the legal sector. Uh, we've also talked about an anti-gentrification fund, right, that would exist to buy up uh, companies that are threatened by rising house prices on the high street. Or not, not house prices, sorry, um, commercial property on the high street, right? Mm-hmm. So we have lots of options. And then I think that goes to your criticism about... Um, uh, it goes some of the way to answering your criticism about where the money's going to come from because uh, I, we don't, in our public iterations of people's private equity need to answer that question. We need to, we need to ask the question, if you were to try and capitalize such a fund, where would the money come from? Um, but we don't have to arrive at a stable answer. Where we do need to arrive at a stable answer, of course, is in the private funds. But I don't think it would be appropriate to talk about the nitty gritty of a specific fund, because that would just be uh, pretty crazy, right? You go to investors and you can talk to them about it. Um, no, no, no. I mean, at a, at a, at a very uh, 10,000 foot level. I mean, yeah, definitely. Are, 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 you, get, are, yeah. You, are you parting with your money for charitable reasons or are you parting with your money because we're going to give you a return on it? Well, I mean, I think that's that, not the nitty gritty. That's no, well, fundamental. Well, it is and it isn't because the point is when you, when you conceive of and try to design multiple funds, different funds can answer that question in different ways. Fine. So there'll be some some that are that are profit making and some that are charitable. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. I, well, well, I'm, I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that could be the case the more we explore it, right? But uh, but I think what might be what might be productive then, um, because I mean, the, the problem I face, right, is I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, yeah, and uh, and so like it's just really valuable to me to have conversations with people like you who have this really um, granular insight into how these markets and how these financial mechanisms actually work. And the hope is that, you know, I've set up this big broad target, like, yeah, basically we're going to go and get a bunch of like uh, idiots, like soft left millionaires to invest loads of their money in our thing. And then we're going to like, uh, we're going to like buy up the means of production and build like communism within the shell of capitalism. And then the more I've thought about it, the more I've seen like, oh no, there are some really difficult tensions here. Like how do you actually embed, like, yeah, how do you take that money off of the the billionaire class that we're asking right like that i that i find very difficult to find a, a, an answer to that question so perhaps what's a, a productive way forward then is like can you characterize your understanding of how the philip greens of this world use philip use private equity to make money like yeah. what's the playbook what's the what's the right-wing neoliberal like we are gonna uh, we're gonna um, sweat these assets and we're going to uh, minimize our tax liability and make loads of money within five to eight years and then cut and run to Monaco. Or yeah, I think well, I think there's a variety of ways to do it. There are right ways and wrong ways to do it. I don't, I don't know much about Philip Green, but I think he was a corporate raider in the 80s. Is that what he would do? So well, would... well, BHS is the more recent example where oh, okay. he, he went into a, a, bl- a blue chip uh, um, high street um, retailer and just laden it with debt, hid loads of money in Monaco, um, sold the company for a pound and then it collapsed yeah. afterwards, right? So he wasn't really in, in improving its operational capacity or anything. He was just financial engineering and then cutting and running. Right, and, and, that, and that sort of corporate rating is sort of the dark side of, of the private equity model, but it doesn't always have to, to be that way. I mean, you can 
the, the very what, what's the, the what's the bright side? The conventional way to do it is to buy up shares and identify real inefficiencies in the in the business model of the company Such and as. solve those inefficiencies. Like so, so, you know, let's say logistics. Let's say a company is spending way too much money on shipping or something, and and nobody's actually bothered to sort of. Uh, do the due diligence, find out where the inefficiencies are, find out, you know, this 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 shipping company is half the price, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and what in, in our margin will increase from two to five percent and we'll we'll make a money, a whole bunch of money for the shareholders. And- so a key so a key part then of how we we hope to make this work or a key part of the idea, as I, as I sort of explained it to you, certainly, right, is is something like that. OK, so like I think the idea is that we would go into companies and do things like implement a four day working week yeah. on on the assumption that um, or on the evidence assumption. I was going to say on the <laughs> on the, the evidence assumption to it. that it increases productivity. Right. Um, and then doing things like uh, demonstrating as well that when you give workers and ownership stake in their company that that also has been shown to increase productivity yep. so it's a productivity sell you're sort of saying um one of the ways in which we're going to increase the profitability of this company is to um is to go in and make these kind of changes so two things then and then and then perhaps you can tell me what you think of that proposition number one there's a radical marxist critique that says that the idea of profitability is itself the problem right because if you conceive of profit as surplus value by definition the only way to Get, to derive a profit is to exploit people, right? and, and that's exactly what I meant when I when I made the uh, th- the the text comment of isn't isn't the whole idea of profitability itself bourgeois? Remember mm. a few weeks ago, and that's that's the critique I was driving at there. So, so, uh, so then I suppose that brings me on to the second point. Then, though, oh, it's not the second point; it's kind of like an answer to it. it, it is I think the idea is that you create groups of workers who are kind of self-exploiting or collectively exploiting. That's how I've conceived of it. But but, but, but the more radical yeah. critique is to say, no, you need to get rid of the idea of self-exploitation. But self-exploiting workers, we, we, us liberals have a different name for self-exploiting workers, which are called shareholders, right? right. If you give people shares <laughs> in the company that they work at, you know, as executive comp or whatever else, mm. that gives them, you know, a, a stake in the profitability of the company. The surplus value accrues to them pro rata, and and everybody's happy. Okay, I think I I I don't have time to come in with a proper response to that, other than to say like I've been doing some reading around this subject, and there is you know Kostas Lapovitsas in his book um, Profiting Without Producing, his his, le- his less recent book, um, does talk about this. Like um, there's a t- there's a tension within financialized capitalism which prevents um, prevents. Uh, Management from giving, from conceiving uh, of workers as stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, I'm not, I don't really have the time to unpack that. The only, the only second thing I'd like to say then is that, um, you know, in my head, it's difficult to see if that's actually going to be profitable enough. You know, making these kind of operational decisions, increasing worker power, is that going to be profitable enough in the medium term, sort of uh, timescales of of private equity to right. actually give investors a return on their investment. And would you even want to try to do that? I mean, wouldn't mm. wouldn't the wouldn't the sort of the more noble objective be to take over these companies and then run them run them indefinitely as as worker controlled cooperatives or whatever term you want to use rather than selling them on after 8 years to uh-huh. you know feed, feeding feeding these people to the sharks and who knows what the what the new share owner would do at that point. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it ra- I think it raises questions about the time scales of like I mean, so I don't know if you have any views on that. Yeah, it's about personally, like, I think it's 5 to 8 years realistic to um i think you know we should with all i think a, a sort of 10 year approach is fairly realistic but i think we should probably do it in a ad hoc sense i think what you're I, we didn't really not really talked about what joe just said which is sort of that holding it indefinitely idea which is very much the warren buffett way of acquiring companies that's what Berkshire hathaway does obviously they have two uh sort of sectors so they've got the buying up uh whole companies which they don't intend to ever sell and they've also got a share portfolio so i suppose we could sort of i mean obviously they're all going to be private companies so it's not really that sort of split but in terms of ad hoc way of if we do sort of find a buyer who's going to keep this structure then we could send these ones and then we might have some core companies that we're basically holding for life Mm. i think we should maybe sort of play it that way uh but i don't think it's going to be a traditional private equity fund structure obviously it's not at all it's a it's crazy type it's innovative of, right We're exactly mm. um which brings us on to the last sort of point um just gonna quickly t- ask joe uh, obviously we we're talking about this earlier would you think that this fund or what what do you think this fund should do in terms of their tax structures so would you do you think that this fund would uh you know use the tax structures of a traditional private equity fund or as, as we sort of joked earlier would that be too bourgeois well, if, you, if you're planning on making money, I think the, the traditional tax structures of a traditional private equity fund are, are perfectly fine to use because you'd be make mo- making money in fundamentally the same way. 
if it's a charitable enterprise, if you're not making any money, then you won't have any tax. In which case, you don't need a tax structure to minimize tax liability because there's no there's no income to tax. And these are these are really interesting questions because it, it, I think it also raises questions about where we should incorporate the fund, which we've touched on in previous episodes. And I keep banging this drum about, oh my god, we should set up a private equity fund in Gaza. And uh, that's why you went, no? To well, I didn't go to, to Gaza. So, to... So, so, so for those who don't know, there's a there's a very clear distinction between the West Bank uh, and the Gaza Strip. And the Gaza Strip is under siege and has been since 2005 and is like one of the most kind of like oppressed, like people describe it as an open air prison, like there's a humanitarian crisis. So trying to set up a, a financial institution there is ambitious to say the least. But I think that's the whole point is you have to start by looking at the place where people are being most exploited and start and start that. That's your that's your um, point of departure. You have to say, well, one of the things that's really objectionable about the status quo must be that these two million people are expected to live in subhuman conditions where they're being treated like animals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, mean, I, I obviously I don't want to um, derail it too much. I just think that's an important um, thing to, to constantly come back to. I think uh, we should probably wrap it up because we're coming close to um, the end of the episode. But I think maybe a good note to end on then is obviously to, to thank Joe for coming on and being so generous with his, uh, his insight and his time and his... Um, his his criticisms, his constructive criticisms. I suppose what I'd ask, and maybe I can leave you the last word, race. But what what I'd ask Joe is, um, you know, you seem quite c- constructively support supportive of what we're trying to do, even if you don't necessarily share all of certainly my politics. But what what's your one big kind of um, challenge, so to speak? What 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 do you say we have to overcome, or what is the problem that we have to solve if these funds are to be successful? Uh, I think I think. Um be, be less dogmatic about uh, uh, do, uh, furthering this objective in the context of a fund structure. I think it's a very worthy goal to increase worker control over existing companies. But I think there are many, many ways to do that. And, uh, you know, the I think the aesthetics of a private equity or hedge fund are very sexy. And it's easy to get sort of hung up on wanting to sort of... Uh, use that in to 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 accomplish your normative goal but uh but i think there are other ways that you could do that and do that successfully race last word i think that's a question for joe or well i mean that's a uh, that's a pretty big one. I think we should. I think that's. I mean, you, 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 where did that come from, Joe? You didn't mention that the whole thing. I mean, that's a very interesting little. I've not even thought about that before. Well, I think um, I, I think that, we should yeah. definitely save that uh, as yeah. a very fleshy An- topic. Another to episode of this time. podcast, we could talk about the German co-determination law of 1976. I was talking to Ben about that on on Friday evening. Uh, I mean, I have no idea what that is, but that sounds fascinating. It's a, it's a legislative solution to okay. enacting uh, worker control over existing companies Life rather than a fun okay. solution. Sweet. So. Okay, one for Google then. <laughs> um, but really? yeah, like, I just read the Wikipedia. Wikipedia article, man. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Joe, for coming on. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the first episode of 2019. Thanks uh, for having me, guys. Yep. See you. Uh, see you in a couple of weeks, I guess. And don't forget to come to our conference, 16th of February. Peace. Whoop, whoop, whoop. People's private equity, pirate equity. Do we do it on the way out? Do we do it on the way out as well? Yes. I feel like on the way out we. Uh, we can do it again now. No, I don't think we are. It's just like the People's private equity. Whoop, whoop,